Hi. Uh, welcome to the first of our public lectures, uh, which uh, we organize uh, through uh, LSE Summer School. Um, and the topic tonight, you can see in front of you, is no one's world, everyone's problem, global power in a shifting global economy. As you can see, that's bad English. I put global in the same sentence twice. I do apologize, but then I'm a social scientist. Um, my name is Mick Cox. You saw me, I think some of you saw me on Monday. And I said, you have the rare privilege of listening to me. You'll have an even rarer privilege of listening to Danny Kua. Uh, and we're going to debate really big issue tonight. And we've been, we, Danny and I have debated this. And I'm not sure where we now stand on this. We've probably come very close to agreement. Or maybe we don't. We'll find out tonight. We're really trying to debate some of the big issues of is there a shift in basic balance of economic power? What does it mean to talk of the 21st century becoming Asia? People talk about the rise of the rest. Some of you have no doubt heard of this acronym BRICS, the Brazil, Russia, India, China. It looks like the West is down and out. Look at the Eurozone crisis. I've been traveling a lot in Europe recently, Hungary, Spain, elsewhere. It's a pretty miserable place at the moment, mainland Europe, I have to say. Not all of it, but large parts of it are. Uh, and you go to places like India and China and parts of Asia and you get a very different picture and a very different story. So what does all this mean? What does all this mean? And those are the kinds of questions that Danny and I are going to debate uh, this evening. Danny, uh, most eminent uh, political economist, as I say, the economist takes international relations seriously to the degree that I don't know any economics. I've been at least trying very hard to teach Danny some international relations, and I think I've been succeeding a little bit. Anyway, Dan is going to go first. He's going to put forward a few propositions over 20 minutes. I'm going to reply, and then we're going to open up for, for a, hopefully a very, a very lively Q&A. If you could give a big LSE a round of applause to Professor Danny Kuala. Thank you, Mick. Um, if you'll excuse me a second, I just have to set up. I... This is not a PowerPoint lecture presentation. I just want to put up some pictures to illustrate some of the points that I'm going to make. Okay. Um, thank you. This is quite a, a gathering of the summer school. I'm, I am not involved in the teaching of this summer school, but I'm very pleased that, that all of you are here and being part of this LSE experience. As Professor Cox has suggested, this topic is something that he and I, and actually quite a number of others around the school, debate regularly. And at different times, we've taken different positions. And so part of what we're trying to do is to understand for ourselves, based on the facts and indeed the social science analysis that we do at the LSE, some understanding of what's going on out in the world. Now, this has been given to you, it's been sold to you as a form of a debate. And of course, so those of you who do take part in debates officially know that what we're going to do is try and talk around some questions. But nonetheless, it's useful to suggest at least a question 
or a statement that we're going to take both take different sides on. Here is my proposition. The world has changed and we need to deal with it. And the way the world has changed, it has moved in the direction of the newly emerging, or indeed what some people now think of as the emerged economies. My colleague, Professor Cox, here this evening will argue the opposite of the position that I'm going to take. Part of what he's going to say is, of course, that the world hasn't changed. Now, when we, debat when we debate the world, we debate the global economy, we think about changes in the world, it's good for us to be clear what we mean by this, to have a visualization of what we think the world is. Here's my visualization of the world, at least as a beginning. This is a picture of Facebook that was produced by a Facebook intern, someone just like yourselves, a couple of years ago. It shows connections between Facebook friends. In the sense in which my colleague, Professor Cox, is right in the most modern sense illustrated by this Facebook graphic, is that most of the world seems to be still transatlantic, firmly embedded between North America on the one hand and Western Europe on the other. The lines that are drawn in this graphic are lines between Facebook friends located in different parts of the world. The greater the intensity of the line, the greater the number of connections between two different points. So you'll see a great deal of connection between New York and London, much less in parts of Africa. There are bright spots lit up in Southeast Asia, parts of Australia, parts of South America. But hey, you know, for all this talk about the BRICS, China is completely dark in this picture. <laughs> India, for all the offshoring and outsourcing that we, you and I know every time we have the problem with our Dell computers, we pick up the phone, call an 0800 number, it is somebody from India who answers at the other end of the line. For all of this offshoring, outsourcing, PC work going on in India, India still barely registers on this graph. But then some of you are already shaking your heads because you know that part of the reason that these places that I've mentioned don't register is that actually, believe it or not, despite one billion people on this planet using Facebook, not everyone does so to the same degree of intensity. And the Great Firewall in China, competitors in Brazil and India that are used as intensively as Facebook mean that there's a diminution, diminution of Facebook's penetration. Okay, they're all interesting things we might want to parse. At the same time that we notice that the global economy, as illustrated in this picture, remains firmly transatlantic, there are parts of Venezuela, parts of Chile, parts of Southeast Asia, parts of, well, gosh, Turkey and Egypt, that do register brightly, where indeed Facebook penetration there exceeds that even in the United States. So the world is a complicated place. But the world as registered in this graphic is still firmly transatlantic. So my colleague could well use this as part of the evidence for the case that he will want to make, that the world has actually not changed. And actually, as an economist, as social scientist, those of you all taking courses here, you'll know 
that in the courses that you're taking, you want evidence more than one graphic produced by an intern at Facebook, no matter how brilliant Paul Butler might be. Because we want more than just this evidence. Well, I can tell you what would happen if we picked up more of this evidence. The world still has a lot of the global economy, a lot of its measurable economic activity, co-located either in Western Europe or the United States. Indeed, not that long ago, between Western Europe and the United States, they shared 50% of four-fifths of the global economy. And as for the rise of the BRICS, the rise of the East, China and all of that, political economists, people that you might be reading in some of your courses, have made a pronouncement on what happens out East. What happens out East is that they're growing because the West buys from them. There's a huge chunk of economic activity on the east coast of China. There's a massive Foxconn factory that employs a million people in Shenzhen. But what do these people do? They produce T-shirts, refrigerators, air conditioners, iPads, and iPhones. And they're only able to do that not because their own people can purchase these things, but because the West buys from them. The East grows only because the West consumes. And even if we jiggle this picture to take into account how people in China use Weibo or something else, it wouldn't change the underlying economic message. Moreover, political economists, Darren Asimoglu and others who write about the global economy, have pronounced on how what happens in Asia still is a lot of exploitation of labor and workers, generally. The institutions that have emerged in Asia are not, do not produce growth that is sustainable. Instead, these institutions produce what Darren Asimoglu calls extractive elites, a small froth of people at the very top of the income distribution who benefit from the Shenzhen manufacturing, and this wealth does not propagate to most of the 1.3 billion people who live in China, or the equivalent number of people who live in India, or another hundred, several hundred million people distributed around East Asia. Just the fact that all of you are here from all different parts of the world suggests that the West still retains the attractiveness, okay, let me say the sex appeal <laughs> that makes all of you come to the United Kingdom and the West, to participate in its institutions of higher learning and to take part in the soft power that this part of the world generates. And that picture of the world suggests that the world has actually not changed. Okay. I've tried to caricature the case that Professor Cox might make to try not... <laughs> get ahead of the curve here. <laughs> yeah, I noticed that. Well done. <laughs> but now, let me, suggest that, let me suggest that although everything that I've said is factually correct, I have not misrepresented any numbers, let me suggest a different perspective. And that different perspective is one that unfolds across a number of the memes, themes that I've suggested, and that I want to unpack them and suggest that they are not all that's going on in the world. First, Let's take the idea that the East grows with its large Foxconn factories, its large outsource 
um, PC houses in India and Vietnam and elsewhere only because the West consumes. In economics, we like to think about how we learn things from things from what's called natural experiments or unnatural ones. We're not we're not particularly picky. Some experiment that illustrates the forces at work. Well, one large experiment, natural or unnatural, is the global financial crisis that Professor Cox has already referred to. Since 2008, the entire world went into financial crisis, economic crisis, hundreds of millions, billions of dollars of value were destroyed. Okay, hundreds, you know, 50 million people were thrown into additional unemployment. The West is going through a period of austerity. It's pulled back. It's no longer consuming as much as before. If the East grows only because the West buys, then what we would expect to see is that the East has languished even when the West has slowed down, but less than the East has. What has generated economic performance in the world since 2008? Well, here's the answer. The 10 largest contributors to world economic growth since 2007, number one is China. China generated $4.5 trillion worth of growth in the five years following 2007, three times what the U.S. economy did. The Chinese economy still is less than half the size of the United States. Yet over this period, when China, with its large Foxconn manufacturing that was pumping goods and services only to the West, has managed to continue growing despite the West not doing so. And when you look down the list of IMF-generated numbers on who's produced growth in the world in the last five years, it is actually the East, the BRIC countries, and the emerging economies. This suggests that the meme that the East, the East grows only because the West continues to buy is simply incorrect. It is a fallacy that we've heard pumped into us by journalists and many other observers. It is simply factually not correct. The East has been able to grow despite the West not buying. A second idea that this picture tells us is it puts to rest the notion that it is only the West that knows how to manage their economies. In the throes of the global financial crisis, as everybody was running around like Chicken Little, thinking that the sky was going to fall, actually the East, the BRIC economies, managed to continue to sustain growth despite the West languishing. So two of the themes about how the East has got to slow down don't seem to be that appropriate. Okay. Well, that sounds really interesting. I don't know what's going on. Could you, could you keep quiet for a while, Dan? Yes. <laughs> Something going down okay. there, I think. Let me run through, I don't have very much time, I want to give the floor over to Professor Cox. Let me run through the rest of why I think the conventional picture about the West, the transatlantic axis continuing to be the center of the world is not correct. The East has accounted for more than 100% of the world's poverty reduction in the last quarter of a century. At the beginning of this millennium, the United Nations, together with a bunch of you know, worthy people said that what we should do is move the world in a direction that benefits all of humanity. Millennium development goals, we should clean up the environment, we should reduce communicable diseases, we should improve women's literacy, reduce infant mortality, but right at the top of the millennium development goals that the whole world signed up to was to reduce world poverty. And indeed, world poverty is now more than on its way to meeting the first of the millennium development goals. But here's what happens when you break down the numbers. 
the East, the emerging economies, the East, China alone actually, has accounted for more than 100% of the world's poverty reduction. That the United Nations can now announce that it has met the Millennium Goal is due to this economy out there, China. The world's economic center of gravity has shifted 5,000 kilometers in the last quarter of a century. It's true that when we look at the bright lights, big city, Facebook graphs, all of that still show the transatlantic axis being a hive of economic activity. But the rise of the East has pulled the world center 5,000 kilometers from where it sat moored in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean in the 1980s to last year east of Izmir, Turkey, east of Helsinki, east of Bucharest, a movement of 5,000 kilometers, three quarters of the Earth's radius, eastwards across the surface of our planet. And if this dynamic continues, then what we will see very quickly is that the world's economic center will continue this trajectory, not linearly, not mechanically, but in a rather complicated way, but by 2050, coming to rest on the boundary between India and China. This rise of the East, the generation of economic value in the East, has through the sheer mass of volume being generated out there, has pulled the world's economic center three quarters of the Earth's radius across the surface of our planet. Now, the way you calculate this is by acting as if, you know, cities and regions produce economic value. You give them a weight according to how much economic value they generate. That gives you an economic center. Then you can track that the world's economic center has shifted. So this too has shows why the world has indeed changed. And what the question that it raises is how we deal with this. Okay. The way I like to think about this picture is that the world's economic center will very soon within all our lifetimes, even for old people like Professor Cox and me, <laughs> within our lifetimes, the world's economic center will be located in a time zone that is Singapore's and Bangkok's. It will be east of all of India. Okay. That, economic, that time zone will be 10 time zones east of Washington, D.C., and if Washington, D.C. continues to be where the transatlantic powers meet, the world's global policy gets set, we will soon have an extreme disjuncture between where the world's economic center is, 10 time zones east of Washington, D.C., and where the world's political center remains. What do we make of all of this? I've told you some of the large gross facts about how the world has changed. I began by suggesting why some observers, naturally enough, might think that the world has not changed from the tokens of economic life, social life that we see around us, Facebook and elsewhere. But then I've told you, I've dug down into what's happening in the world economically, in terms of the improvement of the lot of humanity, how the world has changed, and I've told you how the world actually has moved. Where do we go from here? Where do we take this in terms of global power shifts? How we should think about global governance, where all of you, when you rise to be the world's economic, political, financial leaders, how you should think about what it means to manage such a world. Okay. 
So in the last five minutes or so that I have back, I want to sit, that I have left, I want to suggest some ideas. First is just a thought experiment. Suppose you go to Hainan Island, east of Vietnam, and you draw a circle about 4,000 kilometers in radius around Hainan Island, which I've done there. Okay. That circle contains a land area of 25 million square kilometers. When you do the calculation and you take that as a ratio relative to the total land area of our planet, that is just one-sixth of the world's land area. However, more people live within that small circle than live outside of it. This tells me that the change in the world, the improvement of economic life, the greater creation of economic value being generated out east, is a win for humanity. In the West, we might worry about how the rise of the East is destroying jobs here, is ruining our industrial landscape, but this is a win for humanity. And when we go over the facts that we've just gone over, the East has done a number of things. It has saved the world in the post-2008 global financial crisis. It's accounted for more than 100% of meeting Millennium Development Goal number one, and it is actually where most people on Earth live anyway. According to the ideals of liberal representative democracy that most of us think are appropriate for the world, it is right that the East take over global leadership. They are the ones who've generated economic value. One person, one vote, means that that small little circle ought to be where the world's political center is. And this is in contrast to the view that I began this discussion with, where the transatlantic axis, or actually the United States, was viewed as the center of the world. <laughs> For the good. Very For good. improving the sum total for improving the sum total for improving the sum total of the good of humanity these changes that i've just described economically and i hope politically are the right ones they're the ones that represent for us the best of ideals of actually western liberal representative democracy and the economic pain that the Western world might need to go through is an adjustment that ultimately ends up improving the sum total of the good of humanity. Okay. What might scupper this optimistic view of the world? Well, one of the things that I mentioned at the beginning of this was that we are all here in London. Many of you have come from thousands of kilometers away to study summer school in London, and believe you me, I am very glad that we're all here doing this. The West, London, the transatlantic axis in general, contains the institutions of higher learning. And for some observers, this might be our 
our hold on preserving the center of the world here. Indeed, a personage no less than Professor Christopher Pissaridis, my colleague here in the economics department, is one of the Nobel Prize winners of economics in recent years. And he, along with many others like myself, believe that it is here that we do the best job training future leaders, giving us insights into how the world behaves. And even as the world changes, even as I am an admirer and you know, a fan of how the eastward shift in economic activity is actually improving a lot of humanity, we have to acknowledge that for higher education, for producing ideas, for being the sexy, appealing part of economic and political engagement, it remains the West that has this. But I want to end by suggesting that the West's hold on this is not necessarily as strong as one might think. And that will conclude my presentation. Well, thank you, thank you, Danny. As, uh, Danny, as always, does a brilliant job, not only making his own case, but also making mine, uh, and making mine probably better than I'm going to make it now. Uh, Danny slightly caricatured me. I'm kind of an old diehard Western supremacist, you know. I love the transatlantic. I love the West, you know. Uh, you didn't quite say that, Danny, but nonetheless. Um, but thank you very much for making my case for me. Let me just explain where I'm coming from on this and where I, th I actually I think in many areas in terms of the pure, on, on the basic uh, economic analysis, I'm not sure there will be so much difference. But I, I tell you where I'm coming from in this discussion and it, it really started for me some years ago. We were coming out of the Bush administration, that's the GW Bush administration, uh, not one of the greatest America has ever seen in my opinion. Um, <laughs> We then went into the financial crisis of 2008, uh, for which uh, St. Bernanke has saved us, it seems to me. And uh, then we confronted the emergence of China, the rise of the rest, and then uh, an economist, Jim O'Neill, uh, chief economist for Goldman Sachs, had made a prediction back in 2001, in fact, in the first paper of November 2001, about the rise of the BRICS. And a few years later, it looked like his uh, anticipation, indeed his prediction, that the world was becoming more like a brick world and less like a Western world, seemed true. And all the things Danny has said are absolutely right. I mean, when the Eurozone lagged, China, through a series of very, very uh, innovative policies, uh, moved ahead. Uh, Eurozone moved into crisis, including countries outside the Eurozone, such as the UK, moved into zero growth or even less than zero growth, if there's such a thing. And uh, India complained that it only had 7% growth a year, <laughs> if only. So one can understand why, therefore, we have moved into a, a, a debate like this. Because it clearly suggests that the world is shifting and changing, and has changed rather rapidly over the last 10 years. People now talk quite regularly of American economic decline. Europe's position in the world uh, is probably going to decline even more rapidly than that of the United States. Asia is rising. The rest is rising. We're going to move into a post-American world. 
a post-transatlantic world. Indeed, I've just, I'm off to Australia, by the way, at 7.30, just to prove that I travel a bit. Um, and I wish I wasn't. If anybody wants to go down to Melbourne and do my lectures for me, please volunteer now. Um, but I've just been reading this, um, the new white paper, which has come out of the Australian uh, Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, or DFAT, beautifully called, uh, and it's called Australia in a, in a 21st Asian Century. And again, many governments have clearly adopted this view, I think, that the future lies in something broadly and rather confusingly known as the East, uh, and something generically, although not very cleverly, called sometimes Asia. Uh, and I mean by that, discussing what Asia means, maybe one of the, re one of the facts that might scupper some of the problems, may scupper where we're going to, Daniel, and I want to raise that kind of question. So we had this new consensus and in international relations language, moving it away from the economic stuff, uh, important though, of course, that is, if you move it to the international relations, a new dynamic debate began about a power shift. A power shift was occurring, a power shift like power shifts in the past. And anybody who studied international relations knows that when you get power shifts, you get conflict. When you get the rise of new powers, in this case, the rise of new Asian powers, or the BRICS, or the rest, and you get the decline of others, the United States, the West, and the rest of, of Europe, you're going to get into a conflictual situation. That is what's happened in the past. And so this wasn't just for me an academic debate. This was also a debate about learning lessons from history and peace and war. Because if we take history seriously, and I think you've got to, then naturally enough you can arrive at a very a rather bleak conclusion that the rise of some of these new powers, China in particular to be blunt, and the decline of others, the West and the United States, if that is the situation we are now in, then we are in a rather problematic situation. And all of the positives that Danny has talked about and has measured and has spoken about so eloquently here this evening, all those things undoubtedly true, it seems to me, fade away into insignificance, at least if we are living in a zero-sum world of one gaining and the other losing. Because if we are in a power shift situation, then we could be in a difficult situation because there's been no serious power shifts in the past without increased conflict, competition, and in some cases, if we go back through the 19th and 20th century, uh, war itself. So that's how I got into this discussion, not only as an economist, but thinking about issues of war and peace, thinking seriously, as I've tried to do over many years, about American foreign policy. And it's out of that kind of thinking that some of my ideas have, have, have come to fruition. Uh, they're unformed because the world is still forming. Uh, I don't deny change, not far from it. And nor am I an advocate of the status quo for its own sake. Uh, that is the nature of international relations. Change happens. Get used to it. And if you don't get used to it, you'll go under anyway, even if you don't get used to it. You know, so get used to it. There are a couple of points I want to make. Firstly, um, by way, not of refutation, but I, I suppose simply by way of my argument on it. One, of course, immediately agrees with Danny. The transatlantic economy, much maligned, much understudied, actually, and much not discussed, actually still constitutes a very, very large chunk of the thing we call the global economy. And I, I worried a little bit looking at the way the new debate was going about Asia, the Pacific, America and China, America and Asia, that this rather important central part 
of the world economy was actually being left behind or ignored altogether. If you like, the Pacific became sexy, to use Danny's phrase, and transatlantic became boring. And what I only did was to go back, as, as many others have done, simply building on others' work, simply to point out that this is a really still quite critical chunk of the world economy, and a very advanced part of the world economy in terms of large corporations, in terms of innovation, technology, and, and, and all the rest of it. If you actually, for instance, look at US, US investment around the world, it invests massively in Europe. It invests massively in this particular country. All the kinds of important aspects, therefore, of a, of a mature global economy, which Danny has been talking about, it still seems to me are still very much dependent on this transatlantic economy. And while one you know, clearly talks, as Danny has done, about these dots moving towards Asia, nonetheless, it does seem to me quite often that this focus on Asia takes away from thinking about the importance of the transatlantic economy. That's the first thing I want to say. Um, the second thing I want to say, and I suppose this gets back onto an American point, I've been engaged too in another debate which has been going on ever since I demonstrated against the Vietnam War back in 1968, so that shows you how old I am uh, and how politically correct I was then. Um, that policeman was really aggressive to me outside that American embassy. Um, which is now being moved, of course, in London. But one thing that I've been very much engaged in is thinking about America and American power, not surprisingly. Um, and I suppose it gets down to a question, why is it this, this extraordinary successful superpower is still, in my view, going and going well? And I suppose one of the things I was also worrying about, in, and, and both analytically and politically, was that so much of this discussion about the rise of the East, the rise of Asia, the rise of China, seriously underestimated the enormous structural power that the United States possesses and will possess for a very long time in the future. Both economic, the dollar, a market, hard power, it spends 48% of world expenditure on the military, and in spite of George W. Bush's best efforts, a lot of people still like the United States. In other words, it's still got quite a lot of soft power. George W. did his best to make anti-Americanism part of the, the furniture in this city and indeed at this university, which I never felt very comfortable with. Well, Barack has come back to save America from Bushism and the Republicans. I hope there's one or two Republicans in the audience. You can throw fruit at me in a moment. <laughs> but the point I was really trying to drive at here is it still seems to me that this debate particularly about the rise of China, which I think has been seriously overdone, seriously overdone, about China's rise. Not only understates America's huge global power and global reach, which it is going to possess for many, many years to come, it also overstates China's rise. Now, I'm absolutely in Danny's camp on talking about China's contribution to world economic growth, to poverty reduction, to all the things it has done, to the creation of the new middle class whose ideology is shopping. I'm all for that. I'm all for that, you know. Give me more shopping. Give me more members of the middle class. And if China's got lots of them, great. What I worried about was actually not in an anti-Chinese sense, in which I, I don't think I've ever been accused, but I thought that there was a, 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 a mismatch. Danny talked of a mismatch between economic power and political power, if you like, between Asia and... I thought there was a mismatch between a lot of the rhetoric 
and what I think was really, is really happening and is still happening today. Because I think there's a real danger in many people in Beijing, and indeed in Asia, but in Beijing in particular, understating American power and not taking it seriously enough, and many people in Washington overstating Chinese rise and taking it too seriously and then reacting in an aggressive fashion to it. That's how, in part, the Cold War began. Percept different misperceptions of different power relationships led people to think the other side was either more powerful or more weak than it really was. And I think that's a certain real danger we're in at the moment. And that, again, was one of the reasons I kind of got engaged in this debate, partly because I wanted to, in a sense, uh, steer the debate away from thinking of one rising, one declining, one going down, one going up, and thinking why this was problematic empirically, particularly when thinking of American power and some of the fundamental weaknesses China still has, and will have for many years to come, not overestimating Chinese power, not underestimating American power. Therein lies the road to a deep security dilemma. And we are seeing expressions of that, and we've been seeing expressions of that over the last two years of misperceptions on either side of the Pacific. A couple of other points I'll make, and we can uh, just want to kind of... I think also it's a question of a way of thinking, and I'm not saying Danny is guilty of this, but a large part of the debate I've heard both in, in some sections of Chinese policymaking, and I'm largely focusing on China for the moment, we can extend it to other countries if you like, and I've heard it certainly in Washington, I hear it a lot in Washington, and from a lot in the IR community, and this is how this debate goes, and this is what worries me, again largely from an IR point of view, rather than from the more positive economic things that Danny talks about. I, may, I probably mix with some fairly unpleasant people who don't know how to make money, and Danny mixes with some really nice people who do. Perhaps the world should be run by businessmen. I don't know. But talking to the IR people, the foreign policy people, particularly in Washington, this is what many of them are saying to me. Oh, China. Bad guy. Bad, bad guy. Communist-led, therefore not liberal. Uh, rising economically. Well, that's good for the American consumer and growth and poverty reduction. Mm, but it's rising. When powers rise... The inevitable outcome of this is that America must inevitably be challenged by the new hegemon emerging in Asia, namely China. And look what they're doing. They're Senkaku, Daiyu Islands, you know, the South China Seas, the East China Seas. They're claiming every rock between Shanghai and the Philippines. The Spratlys, the Datlys, the Muglis, the you know, how many islands are there out there? <laughs> And China's claiming all of them. And of course, to add to that, the, the kind of peculiarities and specificities and dangers of the China-Japan relationship. And, and this feeds into the American debate, because this, in a sense, also incentivizes people in America to think the worst about China's intentions. You know, I've listened to lecture after lecture of people who love measuring the size of missiles. And they say, China's got some huge missiles. You know, they've got this aircraft carrier. Well, I said, well, America's got 11. Oh, no. China's got one, and they'll get more. In other words, you're getting a rise of a kind of worst-case analysis, which fits in, I think, to a certain kind of mindset in the United States. We are losing. China is winning. 
We are declining economically, our bridges are falling down, you know, all the rest of it. And China's emerging and will one day take over the world. Or at least will try to challenge us for supremacy or at least primacy in Asia and primacy ultimately in the Pacific. In other words, that's a kind of dangerous... Now, not all uh, Americans think like that, including, by the way, thank goodness, the current American president, who not only has the great advantage of being able to read books, uh, unlike maybe one or two others, but also of being able to write a couple. So I'm really pleased we have an intelligent, balanced uh, president running, running a country with 10,000 nuclear warheads. It really it helps me sleep at night, believe me. Sarah Palin in the White House, I'm not quite sure. Not quite sure what I would do. But it, it is a serious point, because if we, if we are in this mindset of rising and falling, one gains, the other loses. A zero-sum game. And, if we, do, and if, we, if we can pick up any number of Chinese patriots, so-called, Chinese who talk about wanting to become number one, we will you know, restore the balance of power. In the, you do hear this from intellect, from certain think tanks in China. And not from everybody, but you do hear it. So therefore you've got one group on one side of the Pacific in Beijing and another group, not all of them on either side, talking to each other with this increasing verbosity, with this increasing level of, uh, of animus about each other's intentions. China's now saying America's trying to keep us down and prevent us rising. Nonsense. Without the United States, China could not have risen. It's just nonsense. It's just economic and political and strategic nonsense. You know, it's simply not true. And on the other side, you've got Americans saying China wants to take over the world, which is equal nonsense. So you've got two sets of nonsense on either side of the Pacific being taught by certain... And it does have an impact on public opinion and the way people are perceiving each other. The truth of the matter is, and here I kind of go totally globaloni and, and utterly globaloni, if you like, in the sense of seeing interdependence, you can't actually talk in these terms any longer. It's not the rise of Asia, therefore the decline of the West, the primacy of the West, therefore the problems for Asia. We're all in this particular boat, rather importantly, together. I mean, just think about it. US is a close ally and economic partner of the European Union. Their prosperity depends on one another. When one has problems, as America had in 2008, we got a, a, not only a cold in Europe, we've got pneumonia at the moment, and the, and, and the patient may never recover. The downturn in the Western economies had an enormous impact, and still is having a great impact, on the Asian economies and on China, where they're talking now more and more of moving away from an export-led economy to a consumer-driven economy. It may be a good thing, but it's arisen out of this crisis. If China's demand for our goods and our products and our commodities go down, boy, are we in trouble. Boy, are we in trouble. Imagine poor Australia, which is not poor. You know, imagine Australia. It's actually the country in the world today which is now economically more dependent on China than any other country in the world. Because it, it's piling up millions of tons of commodities, raw materials, iron ore and coal to China. Western Australia, Queensland and others are carrying the whole of the Australian economy. Now think if this economy, as some people would want to think, one day will go down. So we're all in this, we're all in this um, together. And I think we've got to start having a new language and this new discourse about this and about power shifts which I don't think are occurring 
if we get into that language, I think we get into a certain mindset of viewing others' gains as our losses. And, and I think that's hugely dangerous for foreign policy, and I think it's hugely dangerous for world order and for world peace. I think finally, and I say two quick points, I don't think, I don't think frankly the West should be so worried. I mean, this kind of anxiety status problems that many in the West are now having about all this, I find really peculiar and bizarre. <laughs> it's great. I mean, you know, more and more people come to Europe or go to the United States as tourists and education. This is a huge gain for everybody, for goodness sake. This is just nonsense to see this as a loss. You know, what nonsense, you know? And do you think China worries too much when hundreds of thousands and even millions of foreign tourists and visitors go to China? Of course not. You know, you know we, we, it's a, these are real, real questions about mutual benefit in an increasingly interdependent and complex uh, economy. And in a way, should not be so worried. You know, if we can build great institutions, great educational institutions, this is being clearly the greatest in the world at the LSE, as you know, um, then that's great. You guys come here to study. Many of you coming from outside of Britain, obviously. That's fantastic. E equally, others will go and study in Asia and the rest of the world. I see this as a win-win situation. What could scupper it, however? And here I get back to the question that Danny asked, and I'll try and answer it very, very quickly. Two things could scupper this, it seems to me, apart from... You know, Capitalism could collapse next week and I'll be stuck down in Australia for a hundred years um, <laughs> because I won't be able to get back. Um, I do think there are two things that could scupper this and this, this fits into, I think, one of the questions you raised, Danny. Uh, this is not an anti-American point and I hope people don't take it as such because it isn't meant as I, I'm actually rather pro-American in lots of ways, believe me. Um, I think there is a special American problem, I suppose. Um, I, it's, just, it, it's, it's basically not an American problem. It's a problem of being the number one for so long. If you're number one for so long, the idea of being not quite number one, I think, presents huge adjustment problems. That's the thing I would say. I think any hegemon or any great power dealing with those issues of we may not be able to do quite so much, we may not be as dominant as we once thought we were, I think Obama is trying to educate ordinary Americans into the fact that this is a new world and you've just got to get used to it, as, as, Danny, as Danny would say. But I do think there will be a special American problem. And I could envisage, and this is my, I, I would, my worst case scenario, that's an exaggeration. My worry scenario is, frankly, that if we get into a very difficult situation or maybe some conflict between Japan, China, within Asia, America gets involved... The political debate around foreign policy in the United States could get nasty. And if you'll get Republicans come forward and say, we're on the slide, we're going down, China's on the rise, look at them pushing around our friends in Asia, the Indonesians, the Vietnamese, and all the rest of it, then I could actually envisage a kind of tough-minded George W. Bush II coming into the White House with a much tougher assertive strategy to try to deal with what is seen as a perceived China threat. Um, it's not ruled out in spite of all the great economic stuff which Danny has talked about. The other thing which could scupper, and here I will conclude quickly, and then we can open up for Q&A, is I think th there are obviously tensions themselves inside Asia. Asia is not an unproblematic concept, as everybody knows. What is Asian identity? What is Asia in some sense? Who is an Asian? You know, 
Are Indians first Indians? If they're first Indians, how do they perceive China? How does China perceive its rise in relationship to its neighbours? How do its neighbours view China's rise? Economically great, strategically worrisome. And so there are tensions within Asia itself which are out with the United States and out with the West. And so those are the things I would worry about. But for the moment, I remain the eternal optimist. I will be getting on a plane this evening at 10.15. And as long as the world economy remains in being, I'll be coming back on the 22nd of July, and I'll see you then. Thank you very much indeed. So what we would like to do, we've got about half an hour uh, thereabouts, a bit more, possibly. And then there's a reception to follow where you will get free drinks, which of course is always a deeply depressing thought. Um, um, so why don't we just open it up? People want to start asking questions, we try and deal. Anything you want to ask, even about things we maybe didn't even talk about. Okay. Who wants to, who wants to kick off? Yeah. If you take, take the mic, okay. How is the current uh, ongoing currency war where China is also trying to uh, make you on a global currency, how is that going to affect anything uh, in terms of global power? Okay, if you didn't hear the question at the back, it's can the Juan the Renminbi become a, a convertible currency basically, you know, can, can it become a dollar I suppose, or uh, Danny, you're the economist, I'll let you, uh, my, my answer I think is no, but I don't know what Danny's going to say, okay. <laughs> Okay, I'll, I'll take a stab at some views on this. Um, a, a first observation is that, you know, the, the language of a currency war is, is suggestive and not always in the most helpful ways. As Mick has said, part of the danger geopolitically is whatever the reality, there's a tendency for political leaders to appeal to, in a, in, in a, in a parochial way, to the masses in not a very helpful way to sort of advance the state of the global polity. So a currency war by itself is already problematic and even within it, people use it in different ways. One reference to that is how Ben Bernanke and others, others in the West who are practicing quantitative easing might be cheapening their currency and by, by lowering interest rates in particularly dramatic ways, by lowering the yield on their financial assets, they're actually driving huge amounts of uh, highly volatile, hot money into the emerging economies, many of whom have financial structures that cannot actually tolerate and absorb mm. some of this, and it's distorting those economies. But it's, of course, you know, there's sometimes a view that says, well, you know, I control the U.S. dollar, it's my currency, and it's your problem. Mm. So anything that I do to it to try and help my economy, if you can't hack it, well, fix your, your end of it, but I'm going to do what I can. And so there's a sense in which that is viewed as a currency war. Now, what's happened there is that I think many economies out there, many emerging economies out there have rightly uh, tried to set up barriers so that they can better manage their economies, and, and they ought to be able to, given, this, given the sovereignty, to do that. Now, there's a second sense in, in which sometimes people use the word currency wars, and that is to attack, address the question, which will become the world's reserve currency? That the United States dollar has remained the world's reserve currency has, in the language of the French, given 
the, the United States an exorbitant privilege. It's given access to cheap borrowing worldwide. It never has a fear of a run on the dollar. Uh, it, you know, it's able to offload risk, currency risk, from its own people and its businesses to the rest of the world. And that's made it a hugely profitable enterprise. Mm. And if some other currency dislodges the U.S. dollar as the world's reserve currency, well, that will shift, giving, you know, giving full flame to the kind of fears that Professor Cox has described. Now, on the, the point that, that you are, I think, most concerned with, will the Chinese RMP be able to dislodge the U.S. dollar? And I think most observers think that that is, if a possibility, extremely remote. It's remote on a number of different dimensions. One is there are other currencies that are already in, big, uh, in wider circulation, they're held more in, in financial reserves elsewhere in the world than the Chinese RMP. And these other currencies, the Japanese yen, the pound sterling, the, the euro, uh, while they are more dominant in that sense than the Chinese RMB, they are far from challenging the United States dollar's world's mm. reserve currency. Mm. So that's a, a first thought. The other thought, very quick thought, is that for a particular currency to become, to be accepted as the world's reserve currency, there has got to be an optimism, a trust, and a belief that the financial markets of that issuing country is able to withstand fluctuations in the value of that currency. Now, the Chinese economy, for all the wonderful things that it's done, it's multi-million dollar factories for the lifting of pov from poverty of over 600 million people, it has not yet been able to build robust financial markets. I mean, they are at the very, very beginnings of that. So for a second reason, it is extremely remote that the Chinese RMB will dislodge the U.S. dollar as the world's reserve currency. Extremely remote. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. Uh, gentleman there, yeah, please. Thanks. Okay. Hello. Um, I would like to know, for example, how do you see the current positioning of countries such as, for example, in South America, of Brazil, Argentina, and maybe also uh, which is Russia's position in this dilemma, and how do you think these roles are going to be played out in the future? Um, particularly because both of the uh, in Brazil and Russia are also part of the break, so if they're going to be with China or... Yeah. Thank you very much. I'll, I'll have a quick go with some yeah, part of it. You want to pick up on the other thing, yeah. Uh, well, the, the first of all, let's go back to the acronym BRIC. Um, it, I mean, it was construction, it was an invention uh, by Jim O'Neill, and actually it turned out to be the most successful acronym of the last 10 years. Um, you know, wh whatever one thinks of it as a scientific concept of you... You know, what they have in common, they're all big. <laughs> and they've been growing. So they've got something in common. But it's still been a very successful acronym. But when just dealing with the Russian one, maybe you could deal with the Brazil one. I don't know if you want to. The Russian one is the peculiar one of the lot, I think, essentially. Um, all the rest I can kind of see a, a logic and a coherence, even though, however different they are. Um, for one thing, you know, the question has been raised, actually, is Russia, firstly, a, a rising economy? Um, and if it is a rising economy, what's it rising on? Well, it's rising on the back of oil and gas, largely. So it's a single, it's a, it's a double-shot economy. You know, vodka and vodka. You know, oil and gas. You know, China, you know, for all of its frailties, financial, which Dan, Danny has talked about, and uh, you, you observe when you're there, whatever its strengths, China is, in a sense, uh, it, it's a robust uh, across-the-board economy in many, many areas, with weaknesses, no doubt. Russia is, I say, the two-shot economy. That makes it problematic. Another indication of Russia's position, it seems to me, secondly, is um, 
is, is, is the whole question of demography. I mean, a rising power normally has a rising population, and, and men don't die at the age of 58 and a half, which men are basically doing in Russia today. This is not the sign of a rising power. You know, I mean, this is, I mean, you know, actually, very interestingly, when people begin to think about the, was the Soviet system in real deep crisis back in the early 1980s, I was part of that discussion, the first thing a very interesting demographer called Murray Feshbach noted was that the average age of a Russian man, particularly men, was actually going down rather dramatically. Um, and he said, this can't be the sign of a, a vibrant, dangerous, vibrant and dangerous threat to the West, given the demographics. So the demographics, I think, do it no, no, no good. Of course, there has been an attempt by the BRICS, and just come on to that point, to kind of find a coherence, as we've seen over the last, uh, since, since mid, about 2005, six, they hold, hold annual conventions, annual conferences, they meet in each other's capital cities once a year. They've come to some kind of coherent positions or at least some united positions on the dollar uh, non-intervention principles. Brazil, I know, takes it very seriously as a concept. It gives great status to each of the individual members. So even though I think it was a dodgy concept when it was first invented, it in a sense has taken on a life of its own and now gives to each member... Of the, of the four, and now the five, if you add South Africa, a certain kind of status, and therefore appearing alongside the Russian president or the Chinese president, you know, does confer status. And it is a kind of statement about where the, where the world is going. I'm not sure Russia is moving in the same direction. That said, and I'll, I'll, I'll conclude here, I think we ignore Russia at our peril. I think, I mean, I can understand why. Putin is not exactly every liberal's friend. Um, you know, from Pussy Riot to, you know, the new to the new homophobia, which is now going through the Russian parliament and all this kind of nonsense. You know, the arrest of this, that, and the other. But dealing with the world as it is, let's not completely write Russia off as some of my colleagues have done. It is firstly a major trading partner for the European Union. You know, let's not forget that. It's one of our big trading partners. Uh, secondly, it has nuclear weapons, and I always take countries with nuclear weapons really seriously. <laughs> um, this is why Iran wants them, of course. Uh, you know, poor Saddam had had nukes. This man would not have ended up at the end of a piece of rope. Come on. Um, thirdly, it's, it's, a, it's a permanent five member of the UN. And as we have seen over Syria, uh, which I'm not going to make any statement about tonight, because I think the whole thing is just a tragedy for the Syrian people, beginning and end. Um, as we've seen over Syria, uh, uh, Russia can do, you know, can, can play a role. I mean, all those who kind of wrote Russia off as being irrelevant, well, ask the reason why is Mr. Assad still in power? And it isn't just Iran or Hezbollah or anybody else, it is because Russia stood behind it. So I think we've still got to take it seriously. Whether one should call it a rising economy in the sense we think of China or India, I, I'm a little bit more doubtful, Daniel, or in Brazil. I don't know what you think on that, Daniel. Okay, thanks. Um, the, the question about how you know, the rest of the world, rest of the emerging world, shapes up in this new landscape that we're going forward. And as my colleague has correctly begun our discussion on, it's impossible to discuss that without beginning with the BRICS. You know, and Jim O'Neill at Goldman Sachs mm -hmm. has actually done all of us a good service to give us a, given us a language to discuss what's going on here. Uh, I think of Jim O'Neill as a good friend at Goldman Sachs on Fleet Street you know, when he was walking to work along Fleet Street, I used to walk to LSE in the opposite direction, and we'd see each other and say hello. And many times you would, you know, over the last few years, as the world economy evolves, 
and you know, people started to think about the rest of the world outside of the BRICS. Even Jim would confess, you know, that while the BRIC acronym has been hugely successful, prime ministers and presidents organize high-level conferences around it. Trillions of dollars of investments are going to flow into them. Jim O'Neill did confess that every now and then he wonders, he worries that, you know, BRIC, with the slowdown in Brazil and Russia that he saw, had really just become ick. Mm. Ick. And after a while, with the slowdown in India, he was worrying about the bricks having become just (laughs) (laughs) And really, really, it has been China that's been carrying the ball for a long time. But, you know, the world will continue to evolve, and the next 11, uh, the next 50, and others will become, you know, the big global growth generators of the world. And how they will come out is going to be all different, for all different reasons. China for its, all its 1.3 billion people, hundreds of times larger than the economy that I'm going to next mention, has actually followed a model of development scarily close to that of Singapore's, which really only has 4 million people, fewer people than take the London Underground every morning. But China, <laughs> China has tried to follow the same strategy in terms of extracting resources, cheap labor, emphasis on manufacturing, exports. And China did it at one extreme. Singapore did it on the other. But probably no other economy in between will be able to do this. Russia has its strengths in a different direction. The Middle East and North Africa, for all the hope that we have for them, will be completely different. Africa, now the fastest growing continent on our planet, has a structure that's totally different yet again. Uh, So it'll be all different reasons why the rest of the world will grow. And what we as social scientists and what I take it we're all learning here at the LSE is to try and think about the world and the causes for these development in all different models, in all different ways. Yeah, lots of hands going up. There's a young lady here, and then somebody back here. Yeah, you could just somebody in the middle there. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Hi. Um, I'm just wondering, uh, with the rise of China and other emerging country economies, uh, what do you see the position of the Middle East in this uh, context? And we know that you know America is basically the friend of Israel, and uh, yeah. you know a lot of times China is um, on the side of Palestine, and China is friends of Iran, and uh, you know all the sanctions America and uh, the Western Europe, the European countries are putting put on Iran. Uh, China is basically pushed, has basically pushed back. Uh, uh, guys, not, on your way out, could you? Thanks. Yeah. Not a lot, but to a small extent. So. What do you say the new order in mm. the Middle East and, you know, for security well, reasons as well? Okay, look, I'll have a quick go at that. I mean, this is... I, a friend, a Jewish friend of mine 25 years ago said, never talk about the Middle East, it will only get worse. Um, <laughs> and it was good Jewish humor as well, as he was, plus the fact he knew Israel pretty well. And, uh, and I kind of sadly have to say that it, it in, in some senses... Whether it's got worse or better, I'll, I'll leave up for others to judge. I'm, I'm not a complete specialist on this. Um, it's, it, it, I mean, I, I, I kind of see it as, as from the outside, not just through the prism of terrorism, but through the prism of the culture, the religion, the, the, the brilliant things that have been achieved there, but the real huge dilemmas of this particular part of the world. Why, 
why the Middle East in particular contains some of the, you know, some of the most intractable problems is something that we've got to think about seriously. And it's not just a question of Israel. I mean, you know, I, mean I don't think you were saying that. But there's a great tendency on the Arab street and in many parts of the Middle East, oh, well, didn't have Israel, you know, it would just be like North London, you know. No, it wouldn't, sorry. Um, it wouldn't be like North London and it wouldn't be like Canada. You know, it would be like the Middle East. Israel is a problem and America's relationship with it generates some difficulties. There's no doubt about that. I've just finished reading a great book called The United States, Israel's Best Lawyer. You know, which means about, you know, how Israel, you know, is constantly defended by the U.S. in the, in the U.N. And, and clearly from the U.S.'s point of view, this, this doesn't make it many friends on the Arab street either. So, you know, but on the other hand, the United States, for different strategic and political reasons, has large Jewish emigration from the United States to Israel. Plus the fact that it's been historically, that, you know, the one ally it could depend on in the region. And let's be honest, it's been the one weird and strange and wonderful democracy that it's been. And that does impact on America's perception of it as well as it was a good ally in the Cold War, so strategy and all sorts of other things fit into that. But it's, I don't think it's just an, an Israel problem. And I think it's been very interesting over the last two years. We've got away from, well, analytically at least, we've got away from thinking the whole issues of the Middle East are all about, about, about Israel. I mean, first of all, we see a huge divide within the Middle East between two branches of Islam. Uh, I mean, this, and this is as, as intractable as are some of the you know, Arab, Arab nationalists and Arab oppositions to the existence or the, the peculiar status of Israel as a Zionist project in the Middle East. And it's probably going to kill just as many and has killed just as many people, um, as, as we're seeing worked out in Syria at the moment. Um, Iran and Saudi Arabia work that one out if Iran gets nuclear weapons and how else. And that won't just be a strategic standoff, it will take a religious dimension. There's then the kind of huge problems of demographics in the region. You know, lots and lots of young people coming out of university and higher education without jobs. You know, massive. I mean, you know, the massive, it's a, it's a demographic time bomb. And uh, you can't just constantly have people going through universities, young people coming through, and there's, no, there's nothing for them to do. And inevitably, you know, idle hands will find something to do, and it, 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 it reinforces the instability uh, of, 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 of the region. Moreover, you know, there's this working out of a very difficult relationship between religion and politics, between religion and the state, which is still ongoing. Uh, as we're seeing working out in Egypt, we're seeing working out in Libya, we're seeing working out in all parts. And this is not easy. It seems to me the Middle East is kind of confronting the problems that Europe might have confronted about three or 400 years ago, namely what is supposed to be the re correct relationship between the state and religion. Can you separate the state from the religion of that particular country? So this is ongoing. This is, this is ongoing. The only thing I would say, and, this, and I, I, over many years of talking to friends from the Arab world, from Iran, which is not an Arab country, of course, and talking to many friends from Israel, I only had one bit of advice from the West. Keep out. Um, it, it, you'll never get thanked. And you're bound to get sucked in to situations you then find yourself getting sucked into even further than where you were before. And at the end of the day, somebody's going to blame you. Um, you know, I mean, you know, look what's happened in Iraq. I mean, it'll always be interpreted as a for another form of imperialism or, G or, or, or now in the new language of politics, the East, as a kind of a new crusade, to use the old language of the 12th century. Um, we always think we have to do something. We always feel we've got to get involved because somebody's asking us to get involved. 
I'm not so sure we do, and I'm not sure we... Uh, and, 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 and the final point, maybe Dan will pick up on this, it's still got a hell of a lot of oil. Mm. And, uh, you know, for what I don't know what, 25% of the oils in Saudi Arabia, look at the Gulf states, which we haven't talked about yet, Kuwait. It isn't just about Syria, it's a complex region. But maybe Danny can pick up on some of those okay, issues. Yeah, I, I would like to, if I may. Mm. Uh, both the question and Mick's answer have touched on um, some of the economics of the region, but also significantly the geopolitical centrality mm. of that part of the world, mixed in with gosh, how many other problems do you want to throw at this? The combination of state and religion, uh, the difficulty of adjusting to a world that's becoming more secular around, around the region. There's the whole Israel and Palestine issue, Sunnis and Shias, and you know, there's just every mix of risk and hazards. Hmm. Um, but we also, as, as Mick says right at the end, we also don't want to forget the energy issue, the hydrocarbons issue. And the 800-pound gorilla that sits in the room when we talk about the Middle East and hydrocarbons is what the United States wants to do. Now, for historically, we've always had the view that you know, always, analysts have always been able to ex give themselves the easy excuse. Well, what the United States does in the Middle East, of course, is simply uh, a consequence of its strategic interest in energy. That's changing dramatically within the current Obama administration. The United States, through its exploitation, through its fracking of shale gas and oil, will become, in the language, energy independent, or in economic terms, mm. energy autarkic. That particular plank of strategic interest in the Middle East will have gone away. This doesn't mean that there will no longer be any interest. There will be interest for security, for strategy, all other reasons. But that particular plank will go away. That has importance. For the region itself, we don't want to forget that as we talk about these large-scale geopolitical concerns, that region matters. The livelihoods of the people in that region is hugely important. And the fiscal sustainability of the systems that they have built hinge critically on the price of oil. Hmm. How much they're able to sell to the rest of the world gives them a war chest of financing and funds to allow their people to get to the next stage of economic development. So while this energy independence on the one hand might be viewed as a win, for that region it is hugely dangerous. It's hugely dangerous domestically in terms of its stability. And while all of that is going on, to complicate matters further, there's the discovery of methane hydrates in Japan and China. So Japan and China might also become energy independent as technology emerges for how we exploit the hydrocarbons that are embedded in methane hydrates. So all of this brings us to what will the MENA region, Middle East, North Africa region, do? Mm. What will they do? And as Mick has said, it is an ex even without all of these conflicting compounding factors, that region already faces a massive danger that's like a train slowly going into a wreckage. And that danger is the demographic one. Within the next 10, 15 years, there will be 100 million people in that region come online in the labor market. The great proportion of them will not find jobs that they are happy with. Mm. We will have 100 million angry young people with no jobs. It is a dangerous situation. Now that needs to be contrasted with how in the rest of the world, we criticize the rest of the world for the rest of the world losing its so-called demographic dividend. 
Many economists have the view that when they're young people, economies grow faster. You know, because like Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook says, young people, <laughs> they're just smarter. The old more, people, yeah. They're more energetic, they're active, they're entrepreneurial, they make the economy go. <laughs> and as the world ages, today, China has 160 million people past the age of 65. In the next 20 years, that number will, um, will double to 340 million. You'll have 340 million old people in China. China will have lost its demographic dividend. This engine of world economic growth might no longer be there. Now, here's the interesting thing to try and hold two opposing thoughts in your head. The MENA region has lots of young people, and we worry about social instability. China, and actually most of the rest of the world, will have lots of old people, and we worry about growth there slowing down. Somewhere in the middle, there's got to be an optimistic outcome that allows us to leverage the world's resources, to allow us to fully take into account the problems that are specific to the MENA region, as well as to the aging populations in the rest of the world. Even more than my colleague up here, I am a diehard optimist. But that solution has not been found yet, and my hope is the guys at Google will find it. <laughs> Very good. You have great faith in Google. I wish they'd pay their taxes, you know. Yeah, the lady, the young woman there. Yeah, please. Yeah. My question is directed at Professor Kwa's statement that given um, the East's economic leverage, that they necessarily should take over global leadership. Historically, China has always been very inward-looking, and I guess that crystallizes in its foreign policy of respecting national sovereignty and non-intervention. So there seems to be a mismatch in what China inherently or empirically is and what you presupposing it should be as a global leader. Yeah. Thank you. Um, my colleague actually is, is going to be equally well-placed to answer this question, so I'll hand over to him in a minute. What? But if I may... <laughs> Yeah, you go. Can I go first? Yeah, 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 yeah. Of course, of course. All right. Now, and you are absolutely right. China has, for the last 30 years, practiced what it calls shh, quiet on the way up. Peaceful rise. Uh-huh. It wants to rise economically without disrupting matters politically. And actually, for that, you know, it's learned its lesson from what happened to Germany after the Germany and Japan both after the Second World War. German and Japanese prosperity post-World War II has been built on the bedrock of economic hard work and political stability, recognizing the rules of the game laid down by the United States and the transatlantic powers. And that served both Germany and Japan very well. The current Japanese cabinet seems to dispute how this quarter century of pacifism has actually benefited them, but we'll put them to one side. They're a bunch of crazy right-wingers anyway. Um, Is that it? Can I? Are you going to get it? So, anyway, so, but I don't think of, you know, leadership as being necessarily China's to take up. I think that, you know, what I pointed to was that the great chunk of humanity that lives in Asia, okay, we're all rising. There's an emerging political maturity and an awareness there. There's a civil society that needs to develop, and there are institutions mm. that need to grow. But what I would say is that we need to be aware that the institutions that that part of the world grows and that might lead to leadership 
might not be the same form that we are used to. Okay. The problems of extractive elites being encouraged by autocracy, the problems of you know, democratic governance in Singapore, all of those things seem to have served and benefited the people in those societies remarkably well. And I think we in the West need to be open to how those different systems can mm. also benefit global governance. Mm. I, I go back historically, and um, just very briefly, at the beginning of the, at the end of the Napoleonic Wars in Europe, the great powers got together and created what they called then a concert of Europe. And, you know, it had its problems. I mean, it was a pretty illiberal concert, and it was based on uh, the status quo, and I don't think we can do that today. But I do think we need to th maybe draw that lesson from history about a concert for world governance um, because the alternative is conflict. <laughs> it's as simple as that. Now, in, in terms of China, it doesn't seem to me China leads, but I think China is becoming a great power and has to take some responsibilities. All great powers have to take responsibilities and not just rise, whether peacefully or not. Um, and that, it seems to me, is going to be the trick. We, we, at the moment, you could say, if we take the BRICS, the four there, China being one of them, the United States, obviously, the European Union as an actor, or maybe the G7, I don't know. But, you know, these are the great powers in the broadest sense, of which China is a, a seriously important one, but only one. And it seems to me, with China, as with the United States, as with India, it may sound terribly idealistic, this, but the, op the alternative to idealism is pessimism. <laughs> And if you don't have a vision of where you think the world is going, you want it to go, it won't go there. It's as simple as that. And therefore, I do think we need to kind of create a condition of a concert, yeah. And this concert will largely be comprised of what I would call, broadly speaking, the great powers, because the great powers are the ones who have the capabilities and the means to affect real outcomes. The thing we have to avoid more than anything else is what I was talking about in my talk that we are getting ourselves, we could get ourselves into a security dilemma in which mutual suspicions on both sides of the Pacific and within the region grow, as they've been growing recently. Perceptions of China are perceived not as economically beneficial to the region or the world, but are seen as a threat to others. America responds by coming in on the, you know, to back up its allies in the region, Japan, Singapore, and all the rest of it. They call upon America to balance towards Asia or tilt towards Asia to balance the rise of China. And we get ourselves into, it seems to me, an extraordinarily dangerous situation. So I think we've got to put forward not a question of one nation leading, whether it's America or anybody else, but building up what I would call a pattern, a concert, in which the great powers together can see that whatever differences they have and whatever areas and zones of competition they're bound to be engaged in, they have far more to win by cooperation and an extraordinary amount to lose if they don't. Yeah, can I add, mm. add also to that? The, I mean, the vision that my colleague has, has laid out, one of, of world governance based mm. on you know, the coalition of the willing and able, really, mm. uh, is one that I subscribe to readily. Mm. One of the themes that's, that's running through this discussion, and I don't think we've actually used the phrase, is the notion of political legitimacy. Mm. You know, there are many people who say, well, look at the emerging economies in the world. China is one example, but actually take any emerging economy outside of the transatlantic axis. Many of these countries are autocracies. They don't have a developed civil society. The, their democracies are imperfect in all different kinds of ways. These countries 
fail to attract political legitimacy, even in the eyes of their own people? How can they expect to attract political legitimacy in the eyes of the world at large? And hand in hand with that, we point out how many of these economies don't have an independent judiciary, have an underdeveloped civil society, don't have a full-fledged rule of law, transparency is lacking, and there's no ballot box democracy. And we run through a laundry list of things that we think world leaders ought to have. And that might be part of the reason when we say, well, I am going to be skeptical of somebody who argues that when economic power has moved, political power ought to follow. I would simply suggest caution and circumspection in how we apply this laundry list to many other societies. Political legitimacy, in my view, can come in many different ways. Ballot box democracy is simply one mechanism, and it's an extremely good mechanism. But you know what? It's not clear that it worked in Egypt. It's not clear that it's working in many democracies that are that are, that are emerging in, in the Middle East. Heck, there are some people who think it didn't work in the United States under George W. Bush. So ballot box democracy is a, is a concept that we need to be very circumspect on. And when we think about China or other countries as being autocracies, one thing that's useful to keep in mind is when the Pew Foundation in Washington, D.C. goes to different societies and asks people directly, short-circuiting our laundry list, and asks them, do you approve of the way, the direction that your government is going with your society, with your economy. The implicit statement there being, given that none of you 1.3 billion people in China have ever voted for your president. Well, here's the surprising thing. For the last dozen years that the Pew Foundation has conducted this survey in China, the approval rating of that government has never fallen below 85%. Okay, now you might say, well, you know, how do we really believe those numbers? True, they're not generated by Chinese statisticians. They're generated by perhaps American poll takers with clipboards, but then, you know, you see an American foreigner walking down the street of Chongqing or wherever asking questions, you might be suspicious. You might, say, you might say, well, I'm not going to really tell him or her what I really think, which is this government stinks. I'll tell them what I think they want to hear. Because after all, they might be spies for the People's Communist Party. So I'll tell them this. And, but when you do the same experiment in the United States, the approval rating, even of presidents like Barack Obama, has never exceeded 36%. So there you have it ballot box democracy and short-circuiting the process, asking people what they think. India, China, India is the world's largest democracy. China is the world's largest autocracy. China has lifted 627 million of its poorest people out of poverty. Number of extremely poor people in India has increased in the last quarter of a century. There are multiple pathways to political legitimacy, and I think we need to be open to that as we think about how global leadership will evolve. That's great. Very good. One more question. Okay, um, yeah, I'll, sorry, but can I ask one more? I'll, um, yeah, let me just get this young woman at the back there, because sorry, if we, I'm trying to get gender balance here. You know, can, this, this will have to be the very last one. Please leave quietly. Please, yeah. Hi. Hi. Oh, hi. Oh, hi. Hi. Hi, I'm from... Hi. <laughs> hi. 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 Right. Oh, yeah, I'm from China, yeah. and I might ask a Chinese question. Uh-huh. I took the development economy in the LSC, and I find out we Chinese think China is a developing country, but all the questions we discussed in the class is about El Salvador, Vietnam, or 
declaratory we think is poor, but we also think ourselves is the one that catch up to the United States, catch up to the United Kingdom. We don't think we are compete. I think there is, uh, like Professor Cox said, there is a misunderstanding mm-hmm. between us, and I'm asking. That's okay. Yeah. I th- I- Yeah. I think we get. I no. Uh, don't. Oh, be, I don't oh, wanna, oh yes. Yeah. Here. Okay. Very quick. Um, very quick. I I I'm, I'm asking a question to both of you. That. Yep. What can we do to yep. to to dissolve dissolve this misunderstanding? Okay. I'll be very very quick on this one because the time is running on and we need to, we need to move upstairs or, and I need to get in my car. Um, <laughs> and I can't do both together. Um, I, I'd just be autobiographical about this. Um, wherever I've lived over the last few years, and I've lived in one or two really interesting places. I lived in Northern Ireland for 20 years uh, throughout the Troubles. And whenever I lived there, I thought, well, you know, there's Troubles going on, and there's some pretty bad stuff going down, and you know, some pretty nasty people around, and you know, one or two I may even be teaching. Um, But whenever I was there, I, I kind of lived through these troubles. And then whenever I came outside, particularly if I went to the United States of America, and largely to the Irish-American community in Boston and Philadelphia, and I come from an Irish background, so I can say this, by the way, I thought, well, which country are they talking about? The one I'm actually living in, uh, having children in and going to s- teaching in, or the one that they've kind of constructed in their memories from something called the famine in the mid-19th century? And I think this is, I, I just use this as an illustration that the mismatch between the way I think lots of people there living through very difficult times, to be perfectly frank, and coping with that on an everyday basis, and the way the romanticized views of Irish republicanism from outside understood it, I was so staggered. Um, and by the way, I'd also say the same thing about the United States. I mean, the, the, the one best way I've ever found out about learning about the United States, guess what, is going there. And, and traveling around it. I mean, I've li- I lived for a long time in Virginia and in the South. I know New York. I know Chicago. I travel around. I talk to Americans. I find out. I ask them what they really think. I try to find out. I don't need Pew, although it's useful. You know, you try and find out. One of the reasons I travel to China a lot, even though I don't speak Mandarin or Cantonese or one of the other languages of China, I travel there because I want to see it. I want to kind of get a feeling for it. You go on the street, you walk around, you get an idea. You know what I mean? You kind of get that feeling. There is no easy way to understanding, in my view. Uh, but the first thing you've got to do is ditch quite a lot of the misconceptions that one has. One has to travel to countries. One has to engage with the people there and understand it from within and not always from without. That's equally true of people understanding this country. You know, lots of people, if I go to mainland Europe, as I call it, think that every British person hates foreigners because we're not a member of the Eurozone. You know, come on. Um, oh, you, you poor British, why don't you? you know? <laughs> come on, we own 250,000 houses in France, you know. We hate Europe, come off. You know, so I, what I think is that we have a real tendency to, lo- we love simplification. We love stereotypes. And I think that's a real obstacle to understanding. Yeah, I do. And I think that, is, that affects every way that people think about either China or where they think about the United States or this country. Yeah, Get away from stereotypes. <laughs> I'm in complete agreement with what Mick has just hey, said. We're agreeing too much but, tonight. But, yeah, but, but to flesh out a little bit more of the, the question, um, yes, it's true. Lots of 
academic courses, a lot of development economics courses, look at villages in India, look at villages in El Salvador, look at Costa Rica and all that, and that's wonderful to study. It contributes to human knowledge. But if you were to take my course... Ah. <laughs> yeah, I knew, I knew he'd say that. Right? DV409 next year. Yeah. <laughs> then, you know, we will learn, we will read about, try to understand this greatest poverty reduction in all of human history that China has undertaken in the last quarter of a century, but at the same time having lifted 650 million people out of poverty, you know, 10 times the United Kingdom, two United States, all of Western Europe plus a lot more, China still has 200 million people living on less than a dollar a day. Its per capita income today is still less than that per capita income of nine countries in Africa. Why we don't study China more as an example of development uh, is, is something that I think you know, we constantly need to be struggling with. Today, the World Bank is going around telling the world China faces a middle income trap. It will not be able to pass this threshold that has currently reached. And that's a huge policy problem mm. that, as academics, we need to contribute to. So where do I come out in all this? Uh, take my course. <laughs> but, but in addition, gosh, well, do the kinds of things that we're doing now have these discussions, come to public lectures at the LSE, come to the summer school, participate in the global debate that LSE is part of, that Mick and I try to be, try to take part in as well. Increase understanding of what the world is about. That's what we need to do. So thank you all very much. Thank you very much, everybody.